Around the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm back from vacation, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. Cash, welcome back, man. You're just getting thrown right back into the fire, huh? Like, yeah. what's uh, what are you feeling getting back, getting back in the saddle with all of this nonsense going on? Yeah, a little overwhelmed. I mean, I come back from this Dominican vacation for my friend's wedding. I take a rare in-season week off, and I come back. The Lakers are inaugural NBA Cup champions, and they'll have a banner to prove it. Luka Doncic is rocking a bra strap that he doesn't need. Draymond Green is proving Rudy Gobert right that his own team knows he's a clown. And Giannis Antetokounmpo's 64-point performance was overshadowed by the Pacers nabbing the game ball for Oscar Shibwe. We're going to have some fun today, and we're going to actually rank or name our top 10 players of the season so far, which I think will be a nice little exercise to take a break from all that. But we do have to talk, at the very least, Draymond and Game Ball Gate. So, Wolfon, I'll ask you, where do you want to start? Man, this might surprise you, Cash, but I have almost nothing to say about Game Ball Gate. Like, apart from the fact that it is pretty funny, I think. Yeah. I just, uh, other than that, like, is there really anything to say? Yeah, I guess not. I mean, listen, I'm actually kind of torn because on one hand, I, I kind of like the idea of a team just be like, hey, you're not taking the game ball for your mantle. If you want it, a teammate should be like you or a teammate should have taken it. Do something about it. The other hand, I don't know. It, does it not just feel like a little bit kind of like some pathetic loser shit from the Pacers? <laughs> like, this isn't. Remember when Devin Booker scored 70 in Boston, but the Celtics won that game pretty easily. And like people were rightly or wrongly criticizing him for like how cheap he was getting to 70 in the game. There was like, maybe, maybe in that circumstance, Celtics are at home. They win the game. Maybe they don't like the way he went about it. I don't know. Maybe they take the game ball for some petty reason. But in this case, Giannis Antetokounmpo eviscerated the Pacers' embarrassing defense. The Bucks beat them. Handle it. And you're going to go out of your way. Like, you can hear in the video from the like the tunnel there, like Miles Turner saying, like, don't give him the ball. Don't give him like a child. Like, you're after all that, you're going to go out of your way to keep the game ball from an all-timer, a future Hall of Famer, an NBA 75-er on a night he scored a franchise record 64 points. And you're going to do it? You're going to try to say you did it so that Oscar Shibwe can get the game ball for scoring his first official points because his tournament points didn't count? <laughs> yeah, first official points is maybe the funniest part of all this because he did hit a free throw in the in-season tournament final that doesn't count on the official record for some reason that I still haven't quite discerned. And... um Completely unrelated, I guess. Well, I guess somewhat related to all of this, but I think if we're talking in-season tournament tweaks moving forward, that's got to be one of them, where they've got to make that game count somehow. Because you have the game that is supposed to be the most significant yeah. regular season game of the year, at least to date, and the one that is like, this is what you're playing for. You're playing to win the tournament, and you're saying the final game where Anthony Davis you know, poured in 40 and 20, doesn't count on the official record. Yeah. That's absurd. And so all of this could have been avoided really if that weren't the case, but I don't know, man, who cares? Like, yeah. I, 
obviously a lot of people do care who are involved in this situation, but it's like, I don't know. This is, this is a thing we do as human beings, I guess, is we find these sort of totems and we imbue them with significance and it can really be anything. And so obviously like the game ball has become this, this totem of significance for a lot of players to commemorate moments in the NBA. That's a big thing in baseball too, right? Like you get your first hit in the big leagues, you get the ball back and it's, it's, I guess, part of the the whole tradition. And I, I understand Giannis, I guess, wanting to have that ball to celebrate his career high, a Bucks franchise record for points in a game. He said after the game that it still eats him up. He doesn't have a, a game ball from game six of the finals when he dropped, what was it, 50 points and like 18 rebounds, something crazy like that. So I don't know, like I get it from his perspective and... I kind of get it from the Pacers' perspective too. Like if they're saying you're Giannis Antetokounmpo, you know, you've got two MVP awards in the trophy case and a championship and a Finals MVP and a Defensive Player of the Year award. Like you're one of the most decorated players in the game today. Do you need this basketball? Like the Oscar Oscar Chibwe, is that how you pronounce it? Chibwe, I believe. I don't know. Like, is, is he going to have any other moments really worth commemorating in his NBA career? Possibly not. So I don't, I could just go either way with it. And ultimately I come out feeling like everybody is being a little bit childish here. Yeah. And I just can't be bothered to care all that much apart from just like really enjoying the, the humor and the drama in all of it. Yeah. And I will say it is hilarious to see the way Giannis reacted when like that kind of reaction from him is super rare. Like it takes a lot to get Giannis to react like that. And the thing that did it, wasn't something that happened in the game. It wasn't, you know, feeling aggrieved by a opponent or a referee in the game. It was his opponent nabbing the game ball <laughs> on a night he scored 64 points in a win. Just like peak NBA moment. Like it, only in the NBA would this happen. And I love yeah. it. Well, I'm, so I guess where I'm not entirely in the know about this is are there these unwritten rules, this sort of tacit understanding among players that if something like that happens, you make sure that, you know, somebody who did what Giannis just did, the home team gets the the game ball. And that's just like understood in the way that it is in baseball. Like, yeah, it, it seems to be more of a thing in baseball to me, like watching, you can always tell, like even the opposing team, if they give up, you know, the first hit of a guy's career, they always make sure that that ball gets to the visiting yep. dugout. And it's like, I just don't know if those unwritten rules apply in basketball in the same way. So maybe a line was crossed here where, you, you know, you could ask a, a active or former player about it. And they'd be like, no, no, no. In that situation, as the visiting team, you do not take that ball under any circumstances. Maybe maybe that's the case. And and uh, Giannis and the Bucks were right to be outraged about it. But I don't know. To me, it just looked like a bunch of grown men throwing tantrums about yeah. something that didn't seem to be of great import to me. I I don't know. That's that's kind of where I landed on it. Uh, but it's, you know, to go back to what I'm saying, it's like you really could, like if you just wanted some way to commemorate that occasion, there are other things that you could do, like other souvenirs, I guess, that you could take to make sure that you remembered, you know, you had a piece of that performance in some way or another didn't necessarily have to be the game ball and you even had Giannis saying 
afterwards he's like he, he eventually got a ball but he wasn't sure if it was the game ball so yeah i don't know the only thing that sucks about this is that Giannis already signed the extension because you know for damn sure if this had happened while Giannis was a potentially pending free agent the debate shows the next morning would have been did Giannis's teammates failing to secure the game ball well is that going to play a factor in his decision this summer and I'm I'm for one I'm really bummed that we didn't get that uh all right I I feel like you're a little more interested in talking Draymond a little more yeah not a lot more because we've been down this road with Draymond too like I I don't have a whole lot else to say that we haven't said about this already that we didn't say. I mean, I guess we didn't really talk in depth about it after the Gobert incident, but we did talk about it a lot after the Jordan Poole incident. And, you know, I I remember actually having that conversation and we were saying at the time, Draymond has always basically been on that knife's edge. It feels like he's maybe tipping over onto the wrong side of it. And also he's just at a point in his career when like, he's obviously still very valuable, still, you know, a top 10 defender, probably in basketball, still a huge part of the fabric of what the warriors have built and what they're still trying to accomplish. But the fact is it's getting to a point in his career where it just might not be worth it anymore to put up with everything that comes along with it. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we're at, I think, is like he's got this indefinite suspension now. Man, the, the gall of this guy, like he comes out of the start of this season. I don't I don't remember if it was on media day or or when it happened, but you know what I'm talking about, right? When he was he was pointing to last season, he was like, man, we just the, the vibes were terrible. The chemistry yeah. was awful. Like yeah. that's not going to be the and it's he might as well have been wearing a hot dog suit and saying we're all trying to find the guy who yeah. did this. Right. Like yeah. it was it displayed a stunning lack of self-awareness or just a willing ignorance, I guess, about what had caused the fractures in the locker room last year. And again, I remember when when we talked about it, I asked you, you know, is this something you feel like is going to ultimately get swept under the rug or is it going to linger throughout the season? And you were like, I think it's going to linger throughout the season. I I feel like it very much did. And so he comes back this year. He's like, no, no, that's behind us. Great vibes this year. Well, you know, he's been ejected from what three games this year now, yeah. suspended twice, and now the the him returning to play appears to be contingent on him taking some steps, what like through some kind of counseling, I guess, uh, in order to get himself to a place where he feels like he can play basketball without being a public safety hazard. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah, I just don't know where that leaves him where that leaves the warriors and it's like i think what we're seeing is like the the a compounding effect and the accumulation of all of these different events where even with the gobert thing i feel like the league was sort of trying to not make an example of him but hand out a punishment that was harsh enough to be like you are a re like a repeat 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 offender yeah and if we don't start getting serious about the discipline that we're doling out for these incidents, then it seems like you're never going to learn. And he comes back and it's like, how many games was he even back for before he takes a swing at Nurkic and gets suspended again? Like not very many. He was two weeks into it. And you talk about that stunning lack of self-awareness 
when he got that five-game suspension that the league did issue because they were clearly trying to make an example of a repeat offender, he had the gall to insinuate that it was unfair he was still being punished for prior actions. Like, this is something I've said with Draymond before, where it's like, on one hand, he is this proud veteran who doesn't need to be told how important he's been to Golden State's four title runs, but he remains a reckless player whose volatility jeopardizes the team's success. He's a basketball savant who processes the game multiple steps quicker than his competitors, yet he remains astonishingly oblivious to the potential consequences of his actions and to the tone deafness of playing the victim. Like, dude, you're not the league's whipping boy. You're a guy who's engaged in pretty dangerous conduct on the court and off, well, still on the court, but the practice court too, over the course of your career. Like, of course the league is going to come down harder on you than they would on a player who has no history of unsportsmanlike or violent behavior. Like, this isn't rocket science. It's just, he is, you know, he's a great, probably Hall of Fame, but dirty player, and the league has punished him for it over and over again, and now, you know, the punishment is indefinite. And the fact that he doesn't get it is just like, dude, well, like, how are you not understanding this logic from the league's point of view? And I will say, too, like, even Steve Kerr now coming out and, like, you know, talking about, oh, yes, like, we do, like, that Draymond does need to change, the one that has done all this stuff. But he also made a comment where he was like, you know, it's really just the last year, because before that, it was mostly, like, you know, he was getting ejected for yelling at refs and things like that. And look, I get that. Obviously, you know, Draymond's their, he's their guy there in Golden State, and, like, they still need him. They're not just going to completely discard him. But at a certain point, like, you can also be honest with yourself. Like, it wasn't just yelling at refs that he was getting in trouble for before the last year when he really went off the rails. He already had a reputation for literally kicking guys in the nuts. That foul he had on Brandon Clark, I don't know if you remember that in the playoffs, where he, like, pulled him down from his collar by the jersey. That could have been crazy dangerous. Like, and I'm forgetting yeah. a bunch of who other... Did he, who did he tackle on the Rockets? Oh, yeah. Was it was it Harden? No, it wasn't Harden. It wasn't Harden. I can't remember who it was, but basically, like people maybe misremember this because obviously what what was so dramatic about it was that he got suspended for a finals game, literally with the Warriors one win away from a yes. championship, and then they didn't win another game in the series. But like he didn't get suspended for the like that incident itself, which was when, you know, LeBron stepped over him and he yeah. punched him in the groin. Yeah. He got it for an accumulation of flagrant foul points in the course of that postseason, which I don't think has ever happened before. Like, I'm pretty sure that's the only time that a guy's gotten a suspension for accumulating so many flagrants in the postseason. So, yeah, clearly, like, not an isolated incident. I think to Kerr's point, you could maybe say like a lot of the stuff with kicking guys in the nuts just seemed like, I do think that was mostly accidental and it was like flailing, trying to sell calls and things like that. And he just like maybe didn't have enough control over his body and was probably being very reckless, but like not necessarily with malicious intent. Whereas like it's, you can't not read malicious intent to him literally punching a teammate in the face choking Rudy Gobert and like dragging him around the court, taking a swing at Yusuf Nurkic. Like these are, I, f I do feel like to Kerr's point, it's taken a bit more of like a sinister turn. And 
you know, how much that has to do with a sense of desperation as the, the Warriors are watching their dynasty maybe start to slip away a little bit and him seeing the twilight of his career coming on and all of that maybe just pushing him a little bit more toward this sense of like being out of control. I don't know. I'm not in Draymond's head, but obviously that's something like he's got to figure out before he steps back on an NBA court. So a couple weeks ago, my weekly episode of Unfiltered was on this. After he had been suspended for the Gobert chokehold and his first me- comments to the media after that, when he kind of went on about how, you know, he's never going to change the way he plays and and he's being unfairly punished for past yeah, Dude, act- his Instagram post where he's like, stop telling me how to be Draymond. Dude. I know how to be Draymond better than anybody. It's like, I get it. You know, no one's telling you how to be you. We're just telling you not to go out of your way to physically hurt people in the course of these NBA games or practices. Like, Yeah, but w- when he came out and said that stuff, as I said in the unfiltered, like to me, that lack of self-awareness and the lack of like understanding why the league was coming down and stuff, to me insinuated like it's going to happen again. He's going to do something that puts another player's safety in jeopardy again and, he's, and it's going to cost the Warriors again. But what I didn't think was that I would be right about it so soon. That it would happen like a couple weeks later. And that to me is the part where it's like, dude, how are you not learning from this? And like you talked about that finals game that he ended up, you know, missing. Obviously, we can't guarantee they would have won that game if he was there. But I'm pretty confident we can say it cost them a chance to win that game. And, you know, started the downhill spiral that led to the Cavs coming back from 3-1 in the finals. But the difference now is that his margin for error, the team's margin for error as they've aged and lost guys, like it's much smaller. And so forget just costing them a finals game now. Like Draymond's continued buffoonery and the absences that follow nowadays could be the difference between whether they make the playoffs or not. Heck, the way this season's going could very well be the difference between whether they make the play in or not. Like the margin for error has shrunk. And it's something I said in the video, like as they age, as they fade from relevance as like a championship contender, I'm not taking away from anything Draymond's done in his career. Like his reputation as like a champion, a guy who has been really invaluable to an all-time team, probably a Hall of Famer. Like that's all stamped. I'm not saying he's going to lose that. But as they age, fall from relevance, as his game becomes less impactful, none of us want to see this guy's reputation dissolve to like that of a grizzled goon. Because right now, that's what he's becoming. Draymond, at this point of his career, is becoming just a goon. And people might not like the messenger, but Rudy Gobert had a point when he said, Steve Kerr, he knows deep down Draymond's a clown. And the way Draymond's been acting, including the way he then reacts after he's punished, is very clown-like. Look, obviously none of us know Draymond. I don't, you know, we don't know what goes on in his head or what he's been through. But I will say, like, some of this were now the Warriors are almost like treating it like he's this guy in crisis and like needs intervention and help. Sure, in some ways that's true in the sense that, yeah, he clearly needs some help in getting over this BS. But at the same time, like not everything when someone engages in really dumb behavior has to be like, well, we got to help him. He's in crisis. Like sometimes a guy can just be either a jerk or a dirty player or be a clown. Like there are people like that in the world. And that's the only part for me where I'm like, really? Like now after all this, we're going to make it like he's this guy in crisis that needs help to get over these issues. Like he has shown no willingness. In fact, he's 
proudly proclaimed he will never change because he fails to see that, like, dude, no one's complaining about the way you play the game. No one's saying, hey, be less ferocious on the court. Be less passionate. Be Don't trash talk as much. We don't want, like, no one's saying change that about you. Continue to be that guy. But, like, chest stomps, nut shots, chokeholds, punches, that has nothing to do with the way you play the game. So, like, I don't know. I, I, There's a part of me that feels like they're still kind of letting him off the hook, the Warriors I'm talking about, by now insinuating that, like, you know, they're going to help him get through this whatever it is that's causing him to be like this. You know, it's possible he's just a jerk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the my frustration with the way that the John Morant stuff yeah. was talked about, too, where it was all about getting him the help that he needs and... Again, I'm not discounting the role that mental health might have played in the Morant stuff or the Draymond stuff, but it just felt like a little bit of like a stripping of agency from both of those guys and like a not, you know, an entire accounting of their role and like the, the responsibility that they have to just act like better human beings. And... So yeah, I just it it does feel like sometimes that can be used almost like as an out, yeah, um, and uh, a way to you know avoid putting it on the player and the person to really take accountability for their actions. So I I, I get what you're saying on that front, and like I don't know. I mean, I, I know a lot of people will say the Warriors have kind of enabled this because he punched Jordan Poole in the face, and then. Eventually, he got a new contract and Jordan Poole got traded. You know, like what yeah. kind of message does that send? But the other thing, too, Draymond Green's in the first year of a new $100 million contract that lasts four years. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I like obviously, this is a business and they felt probably correctly that keeping Draymond around and trading Jordan Poole was what was going to give them the best chance to continue to win, extend their competitive window. But, you know, they're they're lying in the bed that they've made now and they have to figure out how to move forward with or without Draymond, I guess. Um, we'll we'll have to wait and see how this all plays out. But let's leave that there, man. I'm I said I wasn't interested in really talking about this stuff, and here we are over twenty minutes later, so Jesus. All right, so let's do this. Let's take the break, let's come back, and let's go through who we believe have been the ten best players of the first quarter season-ish. Sounds great. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, how do you want to do this? Are we going to go reverse order? Are we going to go starting from the top and just alternate going one, two, three, and come up with a compiled list? How do you want to go about this? Uh, yeah, let's go, let's go in reverse. Okay. I feel like that's, you know, we'll, we'll build the suspense. That feels like the right way to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I also, so to, to be transparent about this, I wanted to do this in part because I, 
I had just wrote about two of the players who are on my top 10 list, you know, not to give anything away or I can, I'll spoil it at some point when we get to talking about those players, but uh, that piece was coming out today and it just got me thinking about honestly how many incredible players there are in the league right now and how hard it would be to like compile a list of I'm going to say MVP candidates. That's not what we're doing because as you know, we have a a pretty strict policy on this podcast about not actually doing award debates until it's time to pick awards. But just to take stock of where the kind of hierarchy is at this point in the season, not even necessarily as a way to like pick nits, split hairs and like compare these players to each other, but just to celebrate all of these incredible players that are putting up amazing performances so far this year. So that was what got me thinking about it. And I also just figure because at some point in the next, you know, month plus, I guess we're going to do all-star picks. And I think this will just make it easier in terms of like the 10 guys that we talk about today, we won't need to talk about it all on that episode. So we'll, we'll we'll, save two hours on that episode. Exactly. Um, So that's what, what got me started thinking about, you know, doing this as an exercise. And then in the course of, of whittling it down to 10, I will say, and I'm curious where you wound up with this, but basically I only had one cut that felt kind of agonizing for me. I I wound up feeling like there was a pretty clear top 11 in the league this year. I agree and then my that. long list had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven other guys on it. So uh, my long list was 18 players long. My short list was 11 players long and I had to make one tough cut to get down to 10. What about you? Man, I'm, I'm counting mine right now and I think we might've ended up with the same thing. So I agree that there was a clear cut top 11. Not sure if we, I'm sure we actually do have the exact same. Um, but then I was also pretty confident or like, comfortable with my choice of who the 11th guy was that wasn't going to make the top 10. Okay. Then I had like a secondary group that was only a few guys. And then I had a group that brought it to 19, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight. no 18. Yeah. So I, we, I wonder if we have the exact same. All right. Okay. Let's go through this. Okay. So who, who were the guys who were on your long list that didn't make it into that top 11? Uh, Donovan Mitchell, Anthony Davis, De'Aaron Fox, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Maxey, Kawhi Leonard, based on the way he came on really strong lately. And I, maybe this is going to like shock some people because it's much Jimmy more. Butler? <laughs> no. And I, even in saying it, like, I think it's a little silly. Like I, he wasn't really in contention with the top 10, but I threw him in here because he was in the mix enough. And I think he's been the best player on one end of the court that I was like, you know what? For the team with the best record, too, I had Rudy Gobert as like the 18th guy. Yeah, uh, I I had both Ant and Gobert kind oh. of in consideration there, um, but ultimately, I just didn't think they quite rose to the level of these other guys. I think with the Wolves, it's just it's tough because they have been so good, like yeah. they've been arguably the best team in the league. But I think it's much more of a of a total team thing. As great as Ant and Gobert have been. Cat has also been really, really good. And obviously in more complimentary roles, so have Conley and McDaniels. And their bench is really good. You know, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Nas Reed, 
Troy Brown. Like, it's just, I, that wasn't one where I was like, oh, well, one of the Wolves has to be here because they've been yeah. so successful. I, I just think that's more of a collective. Um, I had PG here instead of Kawhi. I think he's been better for the balance of the season. That's fair. Uh, AD, Fox, I had both of them. Donovan Mitchell. I did have Jimmy Butler, even though it's like not been exactly a hellacious start from him. He started the season kind of feeling a little bit passive, but I don't know, man. He just still, even when it seems like he's being a more passive version of himself, I just feel like he still exerts so much control over a game at both ends of the floor. Yeah. Uh, and like that heat team has been pretty good. And as much as Bam's been great and, you know, Duncan Robinson is more than just rejuvenated. He's like completely remade as a, a new kind of player having, you know, playing the best ball of his career by far. Jaime Hawkes has been amazing. Like that has also been sort of a, a full team effort, but Butler's still the straw yeah. that stirs the drink there. So I had him in that mix. Um, and then, yeah, if I was to say like, who was the closest to getting up into that like top 11 tier, I do think it would be De'Aaron Fox. Interesting. So I had Devin Booker as the closest. I had him as my eleventh guy. Oh, interesting. Because Booker's in my top ten. So oh, interesting. we're gonna okay. have some we're gonna have some disagreement, I guess. Yep. Um Yeah, uh, Fox is like I I I wouldn't say I had concerns about him coming into this year, but I was definitely interested to see if he could replicate what he did last year, especially, you know, in fourth quarters. And he's once again like the yep. highest scoring uh player in the fourth quarter in the NBA. He's just I mean, all the stuff that he was doing last year in terms of like the mid-range shooting, now the three-point shooting, I think has improved. And like just his decision-making, like his ability to make great reads and great passes at the speed that he plays at, that's where I've seen another leap from him this year. He's been out of this world. Again, this is all, you know, all part of the reason why I, uh, I was high on my Sacramento Kings coming into this year after you know being a doubter last year. I was actually... Uh, coming into this season being like, you know, even with some uh, regression to the mean and the injury front and, you know, people assuming that there'll be some sort of drop off after last year's magical season. I was like, no, I, I actually feel pretty confident in this team's ability to stick in the top six and at the very least like a top two play in team. Yeah, it's weird because they, they do have a strong record. They're 14 and nine. They have a pretty impressive win profile. Mm -hmm. They've, you know, Fox, like I said, has been great. Sabonis has been pretty much as good as he was last year. Keegan Murray, like his defensive leap has been one of the stories of the season, I think. And yet they got a negative scoring margin. Yeah. They've dropped from first to 14th in offense. They're still not good on defense or 19th in defense. So I don't know. I'm not saying like, you know, my concerns were totally unfounded either. I would really like to see them make a trade because I definitely think that that defense still needs some help. Yeah. And if they can find a way to shore that up, I'll feel a lot better about their prospects uh, moving forward this season. But, but Fox has been unbelievable. So, okay. So you, you had Booker as your 11th guy then. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So my 11th guy was Tatum. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's go through then. Then who's your number 10? Steph. Same. I had Curry 10. So I thought when you said you had Booker in there, that it was going to be Steph on the outside. Um, I, I couldn't do it in the end. Like, even though one of the craziest things that, that has happened this season is that the Warriors are minus 2.7 per 100 possessions with him on the floor. 
and actually plus 4.9 with him off, like way better with him off the court. And like, we, we have to apply the context here, right? For reasons that don't have very much at all to do with Steph Curry, that starting lineup that was the best five-man unit in basketball last year has been terrible this year. His literally Pistons level bad. Um, and so we we know, I mean, I don't know if we know what's been going on with Wiggins, but we know what's been happening on the court with Wiggins. We don't know why necessarily it's happening, but he's been a complete mess at both ends. Clay has really struggled, uh, although he had a great game last night and like maybe is starting to get back on track, you'd hope. In a game Wiggins was benched, by the way, sent to the bench. Yes. Uh, and then... That just, I mean, like, Kavon Looney hasn't been the same player he was last year. It just hasn't worked with that starting group. And then you have this Warriors bench that's actually been really successful. Chris Paul arriving has been a big part of that, but also the production you're getting from some of the young guys. Moses Moody, uh, Brandon Pajemski, Kaminga, Saric, I think, has been a really nice addition to that bench. So... That's skewing the numbers in a way that I don't think is really representative of like, uh, you know, or reflective of anything that Steph is doing or not doing. You look at his numbers and like, they're completely outrageous. Yeah. Um, averaging close to 29 points a game, 54% from two, 41% from three on 12 three-point attempts per game. Uh, all of that amounting to 65% true shooting. And I mean, I just... At the end of the day, I was like, yeah, Celtics, way more team success. Especially, like, you look at with Tatum on the floor versus the Warriors with Steph on the floor. It's like no contest. But do I really believe that Jason Tatum is better than Steph Curry? No, I do not. Like, it, that, that Warriors team is asking so much of Steph. And he's done his damnedest to carry that load. But... Uh, other guys just need to step up and give him a little bit more help if this team wants to get its season back on the rails. Um, but I guess if I'm saying, like, why did I have him this low? Because usually you wouldn't expect Steph Curry to, you know, come in as like the 10th best player in the league. Yeah. I, I do think to a certain extent, I, I don't think his defense has been as good as it's been the last couple of years. And we're definitely seeing that. You know, not only in the eye test, but in the numbers. And I don't know, I guess well, I'll, I'll kick it to you. What do you think of, of what you've seen from Steph this year? Like, is there a big difference that you've noticed this year compared to, to previous years? His assists are way down. Yeah. Is I that reflective of anything other than other guys missing shots? So that's what I'm going to say. It's, it's really hard because in trying to complete this exercise, when it came to Steph, I was having a lot of like chicken and egg moments, right? Where it's like, yes, his assists are down, but that's probably more reflective of the quality of his teammates and and the way they played, even the guys that are supposed to be his best teammates. The team's not winning like they usually do, and they're losing the minutes Steph's on the court, as you mentioned. But again, that goes to what's happening around him. And also when it comes to the on-off splits, how good the bench has been compared to how bad the, how bad the starters have been. So there's been a lot of like push and pull when it comes to trying to decide where Steph goes. And then I will admit that, yes, some of it is just the eye test. And maybe that's just, you know, our minds or my mind and my eyes playing tricks on me because they're not winning and they don't feel, you know, anywhere near as inevitable as they once did. It is bleeding into my perception of Steph where I'm like, 
he doesn't feel as inevitable as he once did and as terrifying as he once did. Now, I'm sure if you ask opposing teams and defenses and coaches who are scheming against him, they'll tell you, you're an idiot. He's just as terrifying as he ever was. But, you know, at some point, unfortunately, even when it isn't a guy's fault, when you're trying to, you know, as you say, pick nits, and you're trying to separate guys at this level in an era of NBA superstardom where it's like this, the depth of superstar talent is just absurd, you do need to at some point just be like, all right, it's so close between these guys. There's so many factors. You can go either way. One guy's got a team that's not even in a play-in spot right now. Another, So that to me is where like I feel even having Steph in the top 10, we are still rewarding him for what we know he is. But having him higher than some of these guys who are having equally impressive statistical seasons on much better teams also doesn't seem fair to those guys. And so I think 10 is actually a comfortably good, fair spot for where Steph is. And I'll just say, like, for example, I think on balance, if you just ask me when they've been on the court, who's been better strictly this season, I would say Devin Booker's been better. But Steph's played like 200 and something more minutes than Booker this year and just has so little help around, which seems crazy to say about the Warriors. But the way this season has gone so far, he's got so little help around him. And I think it's close enough to Booker's level where also playing 200 plus more minutes, having to carry. Yeah, but we're not really, we're we're not picking all-stars here. You know, we're not picking awards. It's kind of just like, who's been the best? That's the way I took it anyway. No, I get it. But at some point, listen, if it was like 50, a, a difference of 50 minutes, I'd agree. But when I think two guys are in the same kind of stratosphere and one guy's played more than 200 extra minutes, only a quarter of the way through the season, I'm going to lean that guy because availability is also a big part of this. Yeah, I get the the one that doesn't track for me is saying like Steph's been doing it with so little help because have you seen some of the lineups that Devin Booker has been carrying this season? I know. Uh, Yeah, like the the Suns have been availability has been a big issue for them as well. And there's been a lot of games where Booker, you know, their their big three hasn't, what do they play now? One game together, all three of them? And they lost at home to the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah. So yeah, I I think if I'm pointing to one thing offensively with Steph, I think the off-ball stuff has been as good as ever. I actually think it's the on-ball stuff that hasn't been as high level as it's been in previous years. Like him, you know, running pick and roll, actually doing stuff where he's orchestrating with the ball in his hands. And maybe that goes to his assists being a notch down from where they've been pretty much every other season of his prime. But I I just don't think he's been quite as impactful as like a ball in hand player, as a pick and roll operator, as a a pull-up shooter. That's sort of anecdotal. I haven't dug into all the numbers there, but that's my feeling uh, of having watched him. So, Still the 10th best player in the league this season, in my opinion. A unanimous 10th best player between the two of us. Uh, who did you have number nine? So number nine is where I had Tatum. Okay. And it's, I, listen, I'm I'm comfortable if you want to leave him off. Like I said, I mean, I've got him nine. It's not like I've got him four and I, I think it's egregious to leave him off. But I did still think, even if statistically and even a little bit of the eye test, it's not as impressive as some, as some of the other guys who were on the fringes of just making it or just missing the cut. At the end of the day, like a guy who is this good on both ends, who is the best player on what's been the best, if not the second best team pretty much all season so far, who's been top six on both ends of the court. At some point, I just think not having that guy in the top 10 through that quarter of the season seems a little crazy to me. Yeah, I, again, I it's like 
I feel like Boston, their success is more about the collection of talent there. And that is not to take anything away from what Tatum's done. Tatum's amazing. And I think for a team that is very starved for playmaking, he is so often the guy who's giving them a modicum of it and just keeping their offense humming. Like, I don't know if this is still the case, but early in the season, for sure, their offense would just completely crater when he would hit the bench. And I like the the mix of kind of like pull-up threes and drives that we're seeing from him this season. I think his footwork on those drives is like, getting close to being unparalleled in the league, like his, his Euro steps, just like his ability to kind of modulate his strides to keep defenders off balance and change paces and things like that. And I, you know, defensively, I think he remains, you know, one of the better wing team defenders in the league. And he's a big part of what makes that, that scheme with all of its cross matching and switchability and help principles work in Boston. But I still feel like there are too many times, I guess, for me, where he is part of the problem if we're talking about the stagnation with that offense and its tendency to kind of grind down, especially toward the end of games. And yeah, that's why I just, again, it's like, this is no slight to him. It's more yeah. just a, a testament, I think, to how great the, the the players I had in my top 10 have been this year. So. He he was by far the toughest cut for me, obviously, but uh, I would have no issue with him being in anybody's top 10 either. Okay, so who was your number nine? KD. Okay. Uh, he was my number eight. <laughs> so uh, Yeah, so I, I had KD nine and Booker eight. I think Booker's been the best son this year. And it, it just came down to the playmaking for me. Like, Booker basically playing point guard, for, not basically, Booker playing point guard for this team and doing it at an exceptionally high level. Like it, his ability now to deal with pretty much every different kind of coverage, especially the sort of two on the ball coverages that used to give him some trouble. He's just so good now at picking those apart and unbelievable at just like getting to his spots so fluid getting to, you know, getting to those pull-ups, but also like getting to the rim. He's unbelievable in transition, just an insane offensive talent. And to me, he's been more the engine of that team kind of driving their success than Durant has. But again, it's, it's really close. And Durant has also been so good. Like just, I mean, look at his counting stats, 31 points a game. 53% 53% on twos, 48% on threes, and 89% on free throws. And he's getting there eight and a half times a game. Uh, just insane. Just insane for a guy with, you know, the, all the miles that he has on his body and his injury history. He's played, you know, 20 out of 24 games, which I think has been a really big factor. Um, but I had both of these guys just because, like, so often they've had to do it alone. Like, they've only played... 11 games together and 260 total minutes on court together. And uh, individually they're doing so much to kind of like keep this team afloat in like for a top heavy team that is built around these three stars to have had so little availability for all those three stars together. It's pretty incredible that 
they are even 13 and 11 right now. Yeah. And so the reason I had Durant, you know, slightly out of Booker, I had him eight at Booker 11 was because of what, like you mentioned, like, have you seen some of the lineups Devin Booker has had to prop up? Guess what? Kevin Durant has propped up those lineups and he's had to play 200 plus more minutes than Booker, similar to what I was saying with Curry. Like, I, I know we're not picking MVPs here or All-Stars, but again, we are picking who's been the best so far through more than a quarter of the season. And availability, like I said earlier, is you know a big part of that when guys are this close in overall impact. And I think the fact that Durant has had to do it by himself for even more, much more than Booker has already so far this season and help prop this team up. Again, I you know, I don't think there's a really a bad choice between KD and Book here, but I lean KD because I think they're so close. And I think the extra 200 minutes does tilt things in Durant's favor for me. I mean, the guy's averaging like over a block, shooting 48% from deep. Again, it's close. Like we're talking about eight versus 11 for me, but I did have KD ahead of Book. I just, yeah. And that's fine if you want to do it that way. I just don't care that much about minutes for the purposes of this exercise because I'm more just thinking about like who's actually playing better like who are the best players in the league right and now? i but that's what i'm saying I, I i don't think booker's playing better than katie i think it's close i'd probably still give the edge to KD, but the fact it's even close and we're talking about again like a 200 minute gap in only a quarter of a season is actually pretty large yeah we you know we just talked about this with steph how context was very important but i would say i don't from watching the suns get a sense that the context in terms of the lineups that they're playing with has been that different between him and KD. Um, Because a lot of the time, like when they're doing the stagger, it's just like, okay, so KD is usually taking that rest first. He's coming out of the game at like the six minute mark of the first quarter. Booker's carrying, you know, the the transitional lineups. Then Booker's hitting the bench and like KD is replacing him and it's sort of just the same thing. Like they're usually uh, playing with the same sort of assembly of complementary pieces. And so that was a reason, I guess, for me to put a little bit more focus on the impact stats and the on-offs. And Booker just clears KD in in those categories. Plus 10 per 100 possessions with him on the floor, minus 6.1 with him off. And to me, again, I think that's, that's matched the eye test just because of... I, I think Booker's playmaking gives him the edge when it comes to carrying lineups with a bunch of role players. They were like minus 20 in eight minutes without him against the Nets the other night. Um, okay, so, sorry. I had Booker eight, Durant nine. Who did you have at eight? I had KD at eight. Oh, sorry. Oh, Tatum was your nine. Okay, yeah. so uh, so we're on to seven then. Yeah, my seven is LeBron James. Same. And maybe some people listening will think this is a slight against him to have this low. I, you know, I still think it's obviously outrageous that he's this good at this age and stage of his career. It's unprecedented, not just in the NBA, but literally in sports history. Um, what more can you say about the guy? He, Le, LeBron James is shooting 62% inside the arc, 40% from deep. Like, Remember peak LeBron in those Miami days when it was like, oh, this is the most unfair version of LeBron because he's doing all this on both ends and he's all of a sudden a 40% three-point shooter? Guess what? He's doing it again at age 65. Like, this is absolutely unreal. 
And I think he's actually bringing it on the, maybe, okay, not every possession, but for the most part, I think he's bringing it defensively uh, early in the season like he hasn't in the last few years. And when you combine it with just like his overall offensive impact, the efficiency with which he is getting it done on the offensive end, the playmaking yeah. still. Highest like, effective field goal percentage of his career. Unbelievable. And again, the fact that everything I just said about him, and we've got him seventh. We've got six players ahead of him through the first quarter of the season is just a reflection of how unreal the depth of not just talent, but the depth of superstar talent is in the NBA right now. But yeah, you have to have LeBron still in the top 10. According to us, you've got to have him at least in the top seven. What more can you say that we haven't said over the last two decades? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, as I told Dan Devine on our last episode, I've just come all the way back around to, you know, from like rolling my eyes at all of the purple, you know, LeBron praise when every time he did something even remotely impressive, like we had to just like get down on our knees and just marvel at him doing this at his age. And I'm like, no, actually... We need to lay this on as thick as possible because he's about to turn 39. He's been, in our mind, the seventh best player in the NBA this season. And I got to say, he probably jumped up like three or maybe four spots for me just because of his performance in the in-season tournament. You're talking about the inaugural in-season tournament MVP. And some people might say that's stupid, but like those were games that, yes, they are manufactured and you might say artificial stakes. But they were stakes nonetheless. And LeBron clearly treated those games as important. And so seeing what he could do when he really ratcheted it up, and especially at the defensive end, like that was the best defense that I have seen him play in like three or four years. Like the work that he did as a low man, just buzzing around the court, making unbelievable, impactful rotations on the back line was a huge part in making their defensive game plan against Tyrese Halliburton work where they were just like showing him bodies at the point of the screen, blitzing, hedging, showing him all this pressure. Like that doesn't work if LeBron is not doing what he's doing on the backside. And I, I'm just, yeah, I, I'm marveling at everything he is doing this year. And, uh, you know, yeah, if you want to talk about impact, he is right up there with the most impactful players in the league in terms of his on-off differential. Lakers are 18 points per 100 possessions better with him on the court. The bulk of that is at the offensive end, but we're seeing some of that differential at the defensive end also. And um, you just can't say enough. I mean, you mentioned it, like 62% from two-point range. He's shooting 76% at the rim and taking almost half his shots there as a 39-year-old. Like it... It really does boggle the mind. And it I'm not... Season. Yeah. Um, and I don't want it to seem like we're giving him like added points here because of his age. I think genuinely he's been the seventh best player in the league so far this year. But it does merit mention that it, it, what he's doing is just completely unprecedented for, for someone at this stage of their career. So pretty cool. Who do you have six? Luca. Yeah, I have a feeling we might be going chalk the rest of the way here. Yeah, uh, I think... I, I'm not saying... I, I actually debated... Because I'll just go ahead and say I have Halliburton fifth. Same. And I I did sort of debate whether 
to have them in that order. I had them flipped at one point. But, you know, Halliburton to me has just been a driver of more efficient offense this season. And I think if we're looking at play style and which style I believe in more when it comes to driving efficient and sustainable offense, shoot, man, I don't know. I keep going back back and forth on this because on the one hand, it's like, if you were in a playoff setting, which I know this is, that's not what this is about. If you were in a playoff setting, I think you'd rather have Luca. Yep. Because I think it becomes harder to trust role players in a playoff setting. And in that case, I think you just want a guy who is basically going to be unbothered by almost any individual defender or any individual coverage who's not going to be like bumped off their line on drives, not going to be overwhelmed by size. And you know, that to like Luca feels more playoff proof to me, but if we're just talking about what these guys have done so far this season, I mean, um, that's, I, I think Halliburton has just been a better offensive player. And the, the thing with Luca that has just never entirely made sense to me is that, you don't see a lot of the impact in like the on off numbers. It's not just a thing this year. It's been a thing pretty much his entire career. And I I don't know what to do with that. Like he, the, the Mavs are plus 2.8 per hundred with him on the court. And they're like barely worse than that when he's on the bench. I don't entirely know what to attribute that to, but I mean, he, He's really good. He's a really good offensive player. He's an unbelievable passer and just his ability to like get defenders on his hip or on his back and like keep his dribble alive and just probe and probe and probe until an opening, you know, shows up for him to like get a floater off or, you know, his big man to set one of those Gortat screens so he can continue snaking all the way to the rim or for, you know, Derek Lively to finally spring free for a lob because somebody has had to like come and help on Luca at the last second. And then you add on to that, the fact that he's really shooting the three better this year than he ever has before and has that step back absolutely working, especially in crunch time. And uh, yeah, he's been to me, the sixth best player in the league. Yeah. And I think, look, think of everything we said about LeBron a few minutes ago, and then consider the fact that we've got Luca Doncic a spot ahead of him. That should be, tell you what we think of the start Lucas had this season having Halliburton ahead of him is no slight to Luca it's just that Tyrese Halliburton is having for my money like one of the most insane offensive seasons I can remember and as we've discussed a couple times already this season is maybe in terms of how he's lifting up others around him on the offensive end and elevating the overall team's offensive impact is having a Steve Nash-like season, except while being a much more willing shooter and scoring friggin' 26 points per game. He's averaging 26 points and a league-leading 12 assists while shooting 60% inside the arc, 44% from deep on big volume, and 87% from the free throw line, and leading literally the most efficient offense of all time, a team that's up there in terms of offense relative to league average over NBA history, and you look around him at the guys that are helping him do it, and it's like there is not another player on the planet right now that I think could do this with this roster on the offensive end. And I know defense is part of the equation too, 
He's not good, and the team is atrocious on that end. But I, I think he's been so outrageous on the offensive end, even compared to a savant like Luca, that I think it's enough to give him the edge. The historical context of what Halliburton's doing with a pretty mid-supporting cast has to be taken into account here. I know there are some people who would say, uh, like Hoop Goose, I, I don't know if you know Hoop Goose, one yep. of my favorite people to interact with on Twitter, has been adamant that the Pacers supporting cast is severely underrated and that there's actually a ton of offensive talent there. And to an extent, I agree with that. Like Buddy Heal is a really good offensive player. Miles Turner has become a very good offensive player, but it doesn't work without Halliburton tying it all together. And I think more than anything, it's just the pace that they're able to play at is entirely attributable to him. Like his ability to get them into their offense in a blink of an eye while making, you know, exceptional decisions time after time after time. And like that allows them to not only play super fast, but to do so while being one of the lowest turnover teams in the league. And I, I just think that style, like the way that everything sort of flows down from him. And if you compare that to Luca, like that's the same with the Mavs, right? Like their style is directly attributable to him. And that leads to that. I know they're playing with more pace this year than they have in years past, but it's still a, a plodding grinding style of play. And you know, maybe it just comes down to aesthetic preference at the end of the day. But if you're asking me, like, what's been more effective this season, Luca Ball or Halliburton Ball? I think I'm saying Halliburton Ball. And, I, you know, to your point about, like, his efficiency is insane. Talking 67% true shooting. Uh, he has just been, you know, one of the tiny handful of the best shooters in the league this season. And, you know, you couple that with his playmaking abilities and he's been, I've said this a couple times now, like I think he, he's been to me at worst, like a top two offensive player in the league yeah. this year. And I think he has a credible argument for having been the best. Absolutely. Okay. Who's number four? Giannis. Okay. So there, here's where I guess we'll, we're going to pick nits. Okay. I had, you had him higher. I had Shea four, Giannis three, and I will admit I had it close and it the scales were tilted by the 64-point performance the other night because I had them. I would have had them like neck and neck, maybe Shea a little ahead. Yeah. And then that performance... There's an exchange rate doing it against that Pacers defense. Though. Fair, but there was a part of me, like I think, I can't remember who it was you were talking about earlier when you said it, it was close enough that you just went at the end of the day like, who's a better player, this guy or that guy? For me, it was close enough especially after that Giannis 64-point performance, that as much as I love Shea, as much as I think he's a very credible MVP candidate this season and a, and a top four player on the planet right now, if it's that close, guy just said 64 and you're asking me, all right, even this season, who do you want right now? It's Giannis. So I, I, I gave him the slightest of edges over Shea. Yeah, so look, with Giannis, I think the offense has been probably better than ever. Um. Like his drives are just so explosive, not just in terms of like how he's moving north south, but like the way that he's moving horizontally to kind of get around guys, whether it's the spin move, whether it's the euro. Um, it, you know, he, we talked about LeBron. Giannis also has by far the best effective field goal percentage of his career right now. And I, I think, you know, him and Dame are starting to get their two man game online a little bit, but it's all these other things like, Look, we know like the inverted stuff that he's run with Pat Connaughton now for years where Connaughton's kind of setting that flat screen around the free throw line. That play is like pretty much unstoppable. And then 
these four or five pick and rolls that he's running with Lopez and Portis, where honestly, this was something at the start of the season when I was scratching my head and being like, why are they running so much Giannis Brook pick and roll? Because at the start of the year, it was like teams were going under that or they were just switching it. And a lot of them were winding up in like wild drives into a center or just like pull up threes. And I was like, I don't love the process behind this. And then over the last month or so that again, those pick and rolls have become functionally unstoppable because of the way that Giannis is sort of, you know, exploding downhill and like just dusting these big men who try to switch onto him or guys who try to go under the screen and meet him on the other side. He's been so good at attacking those small little gaps and it helps having those big guys be, you know, guys who are threats to pop out. Right. So it's not quite as easy uh, for, for the big men to kind of like drop down. Um, but that, that's been super effective. Like he's been amazing offensively. It's the defense where I just, I couldn't get there with him as a top three guy this year. It, it has not been the same. And it's, isn't it wild well, it, to think that like in an argument, but like between Giannis and another player, defense is what actually tips the scales in the opponent's direction. Yeah, I've said I think Shea has been the best two-way player in the league this season. And they have by which I mean the guy who has, you know, done kind of the most yeah. at both ends. Not like if you're taking it on balance, maybe he's, you know, put those two ends of the floor together and he still doesn't quite amount to uh, a Jokic or an Embiid. But like the, the balance of his two-way play, I think, has been better than anybody else's. And that includes Giannis, who has had his moments, but has just been weirdly not that engaged as a help defender. And he is very far from the reason that the Bucks defense has been so bad, but he has not propped them up to nearly the extent that I thought he would or that they need him to, frankly. And yes, part of that is like the context. There's just not a lot of resistance in front of him. And so it's unfair to expect him to put all these fires out on the backside. But you know, if you compare it to like what Brooke Lopez has been doing as a fireman, it's like not even close. He's just, whether it's as a low man, whether it's as a drop defender, there's just all these times when he is like consciously or unconsciously just not really making plays to impact the ball. And I don't know how much of that is like, you know, a, a waning athleticism, how much of it is him sort of pacing himself and knowing that he has to preserve a bit of energy for the offensive end, for the long haul of the season. I'm confident that we'll see him ratchet it up to some extent in the playoffs. But I got to say, I've just been really underwhelmed by his defense so far this year. And that's why I couldn't I couldn't put him in the top three. So again, he's been amazing. But Shea has been that good in my mind where uh, he got the the nod. If we're If we have a podium here, then we got Shea getting the bronze medal. All right. Or I do. So whether we're talking MVP, whether we're talking the best players through the quarter, whatever the hell we're talking, once again, for what, the fourth straight year now, we are in agreement that the best two regular season players are Jokic and Embiid. Jokic won two MVPs, Embiid wins last year with Jokic runner-up. This isn't an MVP debate, but it might as well be at this point. <laughs> Who do you have? Number two, or do you want me to go first? What do you want to hear? Uh, so I'll just say off the bat before we get into how we decided to rank them. These are the two players I wrote about today because I just thought it was 
important to shine a light on how rare this is. Them finishing one and two in MVP three years in a row, that's only the second time that's happened. The other time was LeBron and KD, 2012 to 2014. Never have the same two players finished one and two in MVP four years in a row. And I think there's a pretty good chance we're going to see that happen again. It's like unprecedented stuff in terms of their joint regular season dominance that we are seeing right now. And I think it's just that much more impressive that they are doing this in an era uh, where the elite talent pool is deeper than it's ever been. Like all these incredible performances that we keep talking about. And still these two centers are swimming ahead of the pack. And I think it's, I just think it's amazing. And they deserve so much credit for continuing to evolve, continuing to get better. So, you know, before we have to kind of pit them against each other here, I just wanted to take that moment to appreciate what both of them are doing now, have done over the last four seasons. It's, um, it's really remarkable stuff. Yeah, we keep talking about this unprecedented depth of super duper star talent. And at the end of the day, the rest of these guys are fighting for number three. Like, because these guys have been that good over yeah. and over again and getting better. You want me to go first with number two here? Yeah, go for it. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. <laughs> Joel Embiid. Yeah, same. I think especially the last couple of weeks where Jokic has, you know, come back down to earth a little bit, looks a little more human. And Jokic's three-point shooting has fallen off a cliff. We can talk about that when we talk about him at number one. And then, you know, all the while, Joel Embiid just continuing to put up these monster performances, uh, putting up assist numbers that we've never seen from him before. Although I know you might want to speak to why that's a little misleading in terms of whether his playmaking has actually grown. But still, at the end of the day, like you've got a guy who's averaging a league leading 33.8 points per game, 11 and a half rebounds, 6.4 assists, more than a steal per game, 1.8 blocks per game, doing what he does on the defensive end. In most years, in most eras, it would be like, this guy is so clearly, obviously the best player in the game, October to April. Um, and and there's no argument against it. And yet, in this era, in the era of the Joker, like I said, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. I mean, tech. if, if you're going just by MVP voting last year, he was the, the bride, but... I think everyone knows what I mean. And yet again, here we are again, like talking about those numbers and what he's done and the improved playmaking numbers on a team that's playing exceptional basketball despite losing James Harden for, you know, essentially almost nothing. And yet he's number two. Yeah, uh, it's it, it was a tough one for me, but just to speak to Embiid and what he's doing, because I think he's been even better than he was last year when he won MVP. Yep. Uh, he, I, I said this in the piece, but I think he has a strong case as like the best scoring big man since Wilt Chamberlain. I don't think that's a stretch. We're talking about, he's leading the league in scoring for the third straight year. Like who would, who, who else would be in that conversation? Shaq. The difference is Shaq was, I don't want to say one dimensional, but he was an interior scorer that absolutely dominated guys in there and overpowered them. Whereas in beads, obviously much more of a complete scorer who's been a shooter at times, you know, it still can pull up. He can dribble into a shot. Like I, it's so much more like his scoring package is way more versatile. And I'm, I, that's not what matters. Ultimately what matters is like 
who's the better scorer. It doesn't matter right. how they're doing it. Yeah, Shaq was doing it as a post-up player, largely in an era where posting up made more sense because of certain defensive rules. And I, it just not, it just doesn't work that way anymore. And Embiid is still a magnificent post player, but he has almost by necessity had to build out this guard-like skill set where he's driving, he's hitting pull-up jump shots, he's like doing all of these other things that Shaq never had a hope of doing. And, you know, again, like scoring titles aren't everything, but Shaq won one, Embiid is potentially on track to win his third. That would make him the first center to win three since Bob McAdoo in 1976. And yeah, I just think the, the variety of ways that he is doing it, to me, it's like, I, I don't know. He is the, the most skilled and most prolific scoring big man in, you know, at, at least a generation, possibly two or three. Yeah, like a half century. And also, like at the end of the day, all you need to know is that we're having a you know mini debate about whether he or Shaquille O'Neal is the best scoring big man since Wilt Chamberlain. Like, case closed in terms of how great of an offensive player Joel Embiid has become. Yeah, so he's averaging, you know, close to 34 points a game uh, on 64% true shooting, basically. Shooting 50% on long mid-rangers on like 98th percentile frequency from long mid-range. Like he's straight up just become one of the best mid-range shooters in the league. And I do want to talk about the playmaking a little bit because the assist jump is the thing that I think has caught most people's eye this year in terms of like what's different. I do think he's improved as a passer. Like when even when you look at like the sort of reads that he's making out of the post, I think those are coming quicker. I think he's dealing with double teams better, just altogether making better decisions. But if you look at just like the raw assists, right? Going from last year was his career high 4.2. This year he's at 6.4. I think 90% of that is context, like how the context has changed. Nick Nurse comes in, reorients the offense. Way more of it is running through Embiid at the top of the floor. They've gone from 29th in dribble handoff frequency to fifth. And then it's like the changing context of who the lead guard is there. And so if you are just, you know, specifically looking at like what would allow Embiid's assist to jump, playing with Harden was like, Harden was on the ball. He was initiating possessions. Embiid was more of a play finisher. He was getting a lot of his baskets as a roll man, short roll, rolling all the way to the basket, pick and pop. There's still some of that with Maxi, but way more of it is this like kind of dynamic dribble handoff oriented two-man game where it's like, you know, a, a lot of his assists are coming off of just like basic handoffs to Maxi, where he is way more of a threat to explode downhill coming off of those handoffs. And then also because Harden was such a reluctant catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, doing something like, say, having him on the same side of the floor as Embiid one pass away when Embiid's posting up, didn't have nearly the same kind of bite as doing so with Maxi, who is a very quick-trigger catch-and-shoot three-point shooter and currently knocking down 51% of his catch-and-shoot threes. So that's a big part of it. Um, but I, I also do think 
like his, his playmaking has generally improved. And I think it's, it's a real credit to him that, you know, he went from being a very post-up centric type of big where everything was super static for him. He thrived in that role, finished second in MVP a couple years ago doing that. Last year, it becomes much more about him as a roller, getting his offense on the move, you know, playing the other end of pick and rolls with Harden as a different role for him. He thrived doing that. And now he's become this sort of like high post hub elbow operator where a lot of the action is flowing through him and he's thriving in that role. And I think that really speaks to his offensive adaptability and all the stuff we're talking about with how versatile he's become as a scorer and now as a playmaker too. Thriving doesn't even like you mentioned the three almost different roles over those three years. Very good chance he's going to win the scoring title in each of those roles. Yeah, exactly. So it's just really, really impressive stuff. And then I think once again, he's been excellent defensively. And the thing I, I think is really interesting about the defense is like, you may remember this Nick nurse comes in and some of the stuff he was saying in like his introductory press conference and in the early days of, of being there and working with Embiid is like, you know, we're asking Joel to do some things that he hasn't really done defensively before. And I think the image in my mind and probably a lot of people's minds was like, oh, so Embiid's going to be like 30 feet from the basket, blitzing pick and rolls, pressuring the ball. Because, you know, you think about Nick Nurse's defensive systems in the past, that's what it's been like. I think what we've seen more of and this is something that you know has, to me, steadily changed a bit as the season has gone along. I don't know if it's been driven by Nurse or by Embiid being like, dude, I'm gassed. Like, <laughs> I need to just be like chilling closer to the basket. But more what they've done with him is just have him kind of in this one-man zone on the back line. And, you know, sort of doing the point switching thing where everybody's switching around him. And he can remain as the low man as often as possible. And... Some people might look at that and be like, that's lazy man's defense, but it really does lean into Embiid's strengths. And what what has what, what that's resulted in is Embiid is contesting more shots at the rim than any player in any season in the 10-year NBA.com database. 10.6 shots per game at the rim, holding opponents to 52% shooting on those shots. And by the way, per cleaning the glass, he's also 99th percentile as a rim deterrent. So when he's on the court, opponents are shooting at the rim way less. He's contesting a historic number of shots when the opponent does deign to try him there. And he's holding them to a very low percentage on those rim shots when they challenge him. So it just all amounts to him being still a hugely impactful defender, once again, anchoring a top 10 defense, you know, for a team that doesn't have a ton of elite defensive personnel. And to do that, coupled with everything he's doing at the offensive end, I think is just, it's titanic stuff. And so I, you know, I was very close to putting him number one. I think he's got a really good chance at re, uh, repeating his MVP. Um, but uh, yeah, I, for reasons that we can get into, I, I still wound yeah. up having him just short of Nikola Jokic. With respect to Embiid, it all reminds me of literally less than a week into the season when the Sixers were in Toronto and I asked Nick Nurse in his pregame presser you know after all the years of having this like mini rivalry with Embiid and going up against them in the playoffs over the regular season four times a year and everything Embiid has said about Nurse uh in the media before they got together as teammates now like you know what has that experience been like now coaching him and and what Nurse said was that he 
has learned that Joel Embiid can do so much more than even he already thought he could. Like he's like, we are, I already knew how tough of a matchup he was in, as an opposing coach and how many different things he does well. And you know, how many schemes he can blow up and all this. And then I, you know, started coaching him. And even just in the first training camp with him in the preseason and the first few games of the season, I've learned how much more he can actually do and how many things he can do on a basketball court. And we're seeing it right in his continued evolution. And yet, yeah, We've got him too because at number one, again, as ever, is Nikola Jokic, who, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, like the last little bit up until last night, he kind of slumped, at least for his standards, um, looked more human. And I think the gap has definitely narrowed for sure in terms of him and the field this year. Because even as good as Embiid was, I'd say for the first like month and a little bit, there was still a big gap between Jokic and everyone else because he had been that good. I think between how good Embiid and everyone else has been, plus Jokic slumping a bit, the gap has definitely narrowed where I don't think it's as crazy to think Embiid might have a chance. And most of that has to do with Jokic's shooting going. Like, he's at 30% from deep. He's below 60% inside the arc for the first time in four years, but it's like 59 Like, it's hilariously Jokic where it's like, oh, he's even slumping inside the arc. He's below 60% for the first time in four years. He's only at 59 points something. And then he's actually below 80% from the free throw line for the first time in his career. Still, despite all that, averaging a career high in scoring at 27.2 points per game. A league leading 12.7 rebounds per game, 9.4 assists, 1.2 steals on 61% true shooting. Like this guy, quote unquote, slumping is averaging 27 points on 61% true shooting. And then you like he's doing it all for a team that is 17 and 9 and as usual, he has the best on-off splits at least of all the big minute players and of all the players we're talking about today. I think if you actually just go totally you don't put any minutes filters on it. I think like Dylan Reith or something has the highest on-off, but for all intents and purposes, Nikola Jokic, for like what feels like the 115th year in a row, has the best on-off splits in the league. That's not a coincidence. Plus 23.5 per 100 possessions in terms of his on-off splits. Um, LeBron James second at plus 18. So still a sizable gap there. Also, uh, I think for the most part, he's been an improved and more consistent defender so far this season. For a top 10 Nuggets defense. Yeah, I think his defense has basically picked up where it left off last postseason, which is to say it's been like very reliably solid. And I I, I did want to say, thought it was worth noting, the Sixers offensive rating with Embiid on the floor is better than the Nuggets offensive rating with Jokic on the floor for the first time in their careers. Now, a lot of that has to do with Jamal Murray has missed basically half the season so far. But I did think it was worth mentioning. Sixers are at, I think, 123.7 with Embiid on the floor. And the Nuggets are at a mere 122.5 with Jokic on the floor. Um, It was interesting to contrast these two guys, like in writing about it, because I think the big difference for Embiid, as we talked about, is like the playmaking this year. Whereas the big difference for Jokic is that he's been more assertive as a scorer. You mentioned highest scoring average, also his highest usage rate, like more uh, post touches like than he's ever had before, more touches in general, um, more assists than he had. Like 
I think actually maybe last season he had more assists than he did this year. But like, if I'm comparing it to the season a couple years ago when he won his second MVP when Murray missed the entire year, that's the one that you could point to and be like, oh, that's that's the other year where he took on more of this offensive responsibility. And he's doing like like he's leveled it up again this year in terms of just like how much he's taking on at the offensive end. And I just think in spite of all like so he's lost pretty much 10 percentage points from his true shooting down from, you know, over 70 percent to, as you mentioned, 61 percent. And yet most of these kind of catch all like all in one advanced metrics still paint him as a more efficient offensive player this year. Because he's doing like he's doing a lot more, and he's doing that while having slashed his turnover rate almost in half. And I don't entirely know how he's done that. Uh, I think I actually get a sense that that his passing has been maybe like a little bit less audacious this year than it's been in years past. Like less of the kind of eye popping, spectacular passes, and more of just like safe making the right play type of passes that still create ultra efficient looks for his teammates all the time. But yeah, him slashing that turnover rate while taking on so much more usage has been a big thing. And you mentioned it's like, yeah, the the shooting touch just hasn't really been the same as it's been in past years. So he has declined like, you know, and fairly significantly to only shooting 58% from floater range (laughs) When league average is like 42% and 56% on all two pointers outside the restricted area. So he's still, you know, a preposterously efficient mid range scorer. I know the three point shooting hasn't really been there, but it's not something I, I worry about too much. It's honestly just like not a huge part of his game. As long as he has like some level of threat in his back pocket, defenses sort of still respect him as a pick and pop threat. And it almost doesn't even matter because when he pick and pops, like, he's still such a playmaking threat out of those pops or like such a threat to just like drive in and like put up one of his little floaters, you know, like drive a closeout. He's an amazing off ball player. I don't think he gets enough credit for that because of how good he is with the ball in his hands, but he's a wicked cutter. He's so good at using screens. He like flies off a pin downs to get open for mid range jumpers. And we focus so much on what he can do with the ball that, I think it flies under the radar that he's one of the best off-ball players in the league as well. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I just, I still don't think that there is anybody who even really approaches his level in terms of, uh, like, just generating efficient offense, almost regardless of who's playing beside him. Yeah, when you mentioned Tyrese Halliburton having an argument to be a top-two offensive player, very obviously the other one is Nikola Jokic. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I think that, the fact that he is once again exerting that impact on both ends of the floor, even if it looks a little bit different than it does for some other big man defenders, uh, to me, so much of it just comes down to his rebounding. Like he remains probably the best defensive rebounder in the game. I think that's a huge part of why the defensive impact stats love him as much as they do. And it's really impressive for him to be able to do that, considering that he's playing up at the level a lot of the time, right? Like he's got to get up there and then get back into rebounding position. And the fact that he's leading the league in rebounding while playing on the perimeter defensively as often as he is, is like just super impressive. Yep. Still the best player in the world, despite challenges from the most superstar depth we've ever seen. Yeah. Like 
has he ever played with? He hasn't played with another All Star in his career, no. right? Nope. Ever. Nope. And I, you know, you can quibble with that and be like, well, Jamal Murray is an All Star level player, but I don't know. In the regular season, he obviously hasn't brought All Star level impact. Yeah. At any season in his career, and that hasn't stopped Jokic from putting up, you know, historic offensive numbers for both himself and his team. So it's uh, yeah, just feels kind of inarguable to me that he yeah. holds the belt right now despite a spirited push from Joel Embiid. It is and Shea. Uh, yeah. It's unbelievable and yet Jokic has made it so believable over the last few years. You got anything else to add? This I do not. All right, then let's get out of here. Been a good return. Do you have any fan shout outs this week, Wolf on? I have one, but we can bank it if you've got one. Okay, yeah, I'll do one. It it, it is not a real shout out, but it's more of a request for a bit more information because we have a, a Spotify commenter named Hoosier Chica5714 who started commenting on our episodes a few weeks back after we put out a Pacers-centric episode. So I'm assuming that Hoosier Chica is an Indiana resident. And since then, she's been commenting on our our uh, episodes frequently. And the first one, all she said was, I got my eye on you damn Canadians. The next one, she commented, what's it all about? And then on our last, my last episode with Dan Devine, she said, nice episode. I'm saying she, I, I shouldn't, uh, you know, prejudge, but Hoosier it Chica. Chica, so I think. Um, so would love to know more, Hoosier Chica. Who are you? Where are you listening to us from? What do you think about the show, apart from the fact that we're a couple Canadians who maybe pronounce things funny? If you're inclined, tell us a bit more. Or if not, just keep commenting, I guess. And thanks. We want to know all about you. <laughs> Hoosier Chica. All right. Well, uh, that's good. We really do want to know more about you, Hoosier Chica. So let us know. And uh, for all of our other listeners that have not received their shout outs yet, Hit us up on social media. Find us on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email us joe.wolfond at thescore.com or myself joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash and let us know where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, how long you've been listening, all that jazz, and we'll get you a well-deserved shout-out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.